Now the reading this morning is from Mark chapter 14, verses 43 to 65. A church Bible, page 1021, and in the large version, 1550. Mark chapter 14, commencing at verse 43. Jesus arrested. Just as he was speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, appeared. With him was a crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi, and kissed him. The men seized Jesus and arrested him. Then one of those standing near drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Am I leading a rebellion, said Jesus, that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you, teaching in the temple courts, and you did not arrest me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then everyone deserted him and fled. A young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. They took Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests, the elders, and the teachers of the law came together. Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. There he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days will build another not made with hands. Yet even then their testimony did not agree. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death. Then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists and said, Prophesy. And the guards took him and beat him. May God add his blessing to that reading from his word. Thank you, Tom. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, it's great to see you this morning. 
Uh, we sang earlier, didn't we, uh, those lovely words, I believe in, I believe, I believe, I believe. And another thing we believe as a church is that, as Paul tells us, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching and correcting and rebuking and training in righteousness so that the follower of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Um, so let's pray that God would help us as we look at this passage together. And let's pray that his spirit would speak to us this morning. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would still each of our hearts, each of our minds, and that as we look at this familiar passage, that you would show us amazing truths within it that would help us to bow the knee before Jesus and serve you wholeheartedly this week. Thank you that you are a living God and a speaking God, and we pray that you would speak to us all now. Amen. going to um, stick a few images on the screen. I want you to have a think in your mind. Uh, uh, what do you see? I wonder how many of you see a duck? And how many of you see a hare? And how many of you see both? And how many of you are totally confused? <laughs> okay, here's another one. Quite a famous one. Can you see a beautiful young lady sort of turning her face away from us? Or can you see a very elderly lady with quite a pointy chin? Maybe you can't see anything. That's okay. One more. I imagine many of you can see a toad. Is that real fair? I wonder if any of you can see a horse. Just tilt your head to the side. A little bit of fun, but here's, here's the point, and we're going to think about this all the way through the sermon this morning. It's so easy, isn't it, to look, but not to necessarily always see. It's easy to look, but not always see. Here's another question for you. We're going to return to this at the end of the sermon. I want you to look at the cross, and in your heart and in your mind, answer this question. As you look at the cross... What do you see? What do you see? And we're going to come to that at the end. Because in our story this morning, we, we meet kind of three individuals, three groups of people who look at the Lord Jesus and should see, but they fail to see who he is because they remain spiritually blind. And, and in many ways, this is a, a really, really sad story. We're going to look at these three individuals or groups, Judas, the disciples, and the religious leaders. And all of them, for different reasons, should have seen who Jesus was. They looked at him, but they couldn't truly see because they remained spiritually blind. Uh, I found this week quite emotional in some ways, preparing this uh, passage. It's a really challenging passage. It's a deeply sad passage. There aren't many passages more sad than this anywhere in the scriptures. Deeply sad because here are people who should have seen who Jesus was, but they failed to see because they remain spiritually blind. And what I'd love us to do as we look at this passage, it's a, it's a passage of scripture where kind of all the illustrations are in the passage. And we're just going to work our way through it slowly. And I want you to keep asking the question as you look at the cross, what do you see? And I'd love, as I've been praying for all of you this week and praying for myself, I pray that we will feel this passage not just sort of know it intellectually, but really feel what is going on within it. So let's have a look together. Have a look at Judas in Mark chapter 14, verses 43 to 49. Know the context. Jesus has just been in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's still there. He's rebuked his disciples for not being able to stay awake and pray. 
And then he sees that Judas and this band of soldiers is coming towards him. Verse 43, as he was speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, appeared with him, and with him were a crowd of arm, armed with swords and clubs, sent from the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. Notice what Mark the writer does here. He doesn't just say, here's coming Judas. Who does he describe Judas as being? Judas who? One of the twelve. Mark could have just said, Judas appeared. But he wants to draw our attention to the fact that Judas, that name, a disciple, was one of the twelve. This person who's going to betray Jesus was one of the twelve. Do you remember back to chapter 14, verse 20, when Jesus was in the upper room with his disciples sharing the Last Supper? What did he say? It is one of the twelve who dips bread into this bowl with me, who's going to betray me. So when Mark draws attention here to Judas, one of the twelve, he's reminding us of what's happened just before. And notice too that Judas comes with this great army of armed men. Why? Maybe because they're expecting resistance from Jesus. They're expecting he's going to fight back. Uh, between about um, 50 BC and 150 AD, so in that 200 year period, there are about 15 kind of violent nationalistic uprising in Jerusalem. And maybe many people thought that Jesus was going to come and be another one of these, and they had to crush him. So they came with power, they came with all their armed forces, because they were expecting a fight. And one thing that's really struck me this week is you've got the kind of force of Judas appearing in the night with all of these armed soldiers. And then, in contrast, Jesus, who is very calm and who remains in complete and utter control. And of course, we know he's in control. He had predicted his death, hadn't he, back in chapter 8, verse 31. And in chapter 14, verse 18, where we were recently at the Lord's Supper, what did he said? I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen. He wasn't caught out by Judas arriving. And then, of course, at the end of our reading last week, chapter 14, verse 41, what was the thing he said to his disciples? The hour has come. From before the beginning of the world, before creation, Jesus knew the hour when this man, one of his disciples, Judas, would come and betray him. It never caught him by surprise. He never knew it might happen, but when was it going to happen? He knew the exact hour, which is why he could say to the disciples, before Judas even got there, this is the hour, let us go. And then what follows is utterly horrific, almost sick even. Just read the story with me. Verse 44. Now the betrayer. Do you see how Mark again draws attention to who Judas was? He was one of the twelve. Now he's described as the betrayer. The disciple who betrays. Mark's trying to arrest us and to help us to understand how horrific this is. And he goes on. The betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi... That means teacher. And he kissed him. Of course, there had to be a signal of some form. It would have been very dark. Uh, Jerusalem's up on the hill. You go down the Kidron Valley, up the other side, and you're on the Mount of Olives. The only light that would be coming from Jerusalem would be the lamp, the oil lamps, perhaps some light from the temple. But it wouldn't be like Jerusalem today with electricity everywhere. It would be dark. And they're on the Mount of Olives, and it's covered with a canopy of olive trees. They're quite low olive trees. They're very thick. And even if there was a full moon, if they were under this canopy of olive trees, it would have been very dark. So there had to be some sort of a signal so that they knew who was the man. Here's the thing that's choked me up all week. Of all the signals in the world 
that could have been given to betray Jesus. Why this one? Why a kiss? Just think about the significance of that. So many different ways he could have betrayed Jesus, but he chose a kiss, a symbol that signifies love. It would be rather like, I guess, the French would kiss one another, and and, and guy to guy would do this in a very normal way. You'd sort of go and embrace a person, and you'd kiss them on one side and on the other side, that sort of thing. And he went to kiss Jesus. You know the phrase, the kiss of death? The idea that intimacy with something brings about death? That phrase comes from this very moment. It was a kiss of death. And isn't there just great irony in this, tragic irony? The very man that Judas kissed was the very man who, in all of creation, loved him the most deeply. And he chose to betray him just with a kiss. Another thing that's really significant here, and you wouldn't get this in the English translation, there are two words for the word kiss. When he describes the one I kiss, he uses one word, which refers to kind of the equivalent in, in, in kind of modern language of a peck. Uh, it would be sort of as you would greet someone, a handshake or a kiss on the cheek, just a sort of quick greeting. But then the second word that's used when he went up to him and kissed him is a different word. And it's a word that's used in other places to talk about a passionate, prolonged kiss. The idea that if you really cared about someone, you would embrace them and you would hold them very close and you would hold the kiss for a while. Can you imagine that moment? When Judas comes to kiss his saviour, no doubt his heart is racing. What is he doing? And I imagine in that moment, everything just went completely still and, and it's like the clocks just slowed down. And Jesus, who loved him perfectly, looked him in the eye And it was all still. And he held that kiss, almost to remind him of what he was doing. The person who loved him the most. And what did he do? He betrayed him. And then verse 46, it goes on. The men seized Jesus and arrested him. One of them standing near draws his sword and strikes the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. And Jesus challenges them. Am I leading a rebellion? You could have arrested me all the times I was in the temple courts. Why are you coming after me now by force? He's saying. And of course, they've totally and utterly misunderstood who he was. They didn't need to capture him. They didn't need to catch him out. Why? Because he was coming to give his life. What was some of those amazing words that Jesus spoke in Mark chapter 10, verse 45? And they're verses I've never forgotten because I first learned them when I was Ollie's age on a gap year in Africa. And it was the team motto for our verse. The Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. No one had to arrest Jesus because he was giving himself to them. So in in chapter 14, verse 42, where he speaks to his disciples and says, let's go, here comes my betrayer. It's not in the sense of, quick, let's leg it. We've got to get away from them. It's in the sense of, let's go towards them. Let's give ourselves to them. Jesus is saying, you can have me because you're not arresting me. I am giving myself into your hands. So as you think about Judas, he looked at Jesus and he should have seen who he was. He's been a disciple all these years, but he remained spiritually blind. As one commentator said this week, just be careful, Judas was not the first and he was not the last person to betray Jesus. He was just the most famous 
Now, when you hear this story, it's so easy, isn't it, to look at Judas and go, can't believe what you did. But why is it here in the scriptures? It's not there to point a finger. It's there to hold up a mirror to say, how quick can you and I be to betray this man ourselves? And what did Judas betray Jesus for? 30 silver coins. So Judas looked at Jesus. He should have seen, but he remained spiritually blind. And why? Ultimately for him, it was selfishness. There was other things in his life that he loved more than this man who was going to the cross to die for him. Now this is challenging. It's, it's heavy. It's, it's, I hope it's getting into your heart. But as you feel the weight of that passage, it's worth pausing and asking yourself, the question, what is it in your life? And I've been having to do this this week, some soul searching. What is it in our lives that is more important to us than this man, Jesus? What is it? Because in that moment, it was this man's selfishness that stopped him from seeing who Jesus was. And so often, there'll be different things in our life, good things probably, that become more important to us than our Savior. And as we look at the story of Judas, it's worth pausing this week and asking yourself what is it in my life that is more important to me than him Judas betrayed the man who loved him perfectly and he did it with a kiss tragic irony and sadness but the story is there uh, to warn us and I hope we feel the sadness of this story Let's go on to look at the disciples. Just two verses, very short, but there's all sorts of things in here. Verses 50 to 52. Verse 50, then everyone deserted him and fled. A young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. I want you just to focus on the phrase, then everyone left him. Just feel the weight of that. Think about where Jesus is. Think about where he's going. Think about the moment he most needs his friends around him. Everybody left him. And why is that really significant? Let's go back to the Lord's Supper. Chapter 14, verse 23. There's one little word in there that's really significant. Have a look at it. He took the cup, gave thanks, offered it to them, and they all drank from it. They all drank from this cup which was representing the death of Jesus in their place. They all drank from it. And then in verse 31, what did they all say? Peter emphatically insists, even if all die with you, I will never disown you. And we're going to see the irony of that next week. And then the significant word again, and all the others said the same. They've all just been with him. They've all just confessed allegiance to him. They've all just said, we will not walk away and we identify with you. But in the moment when he most needed them, what happened? They all turned away. And what's the very best of all of the alls who turned away? Verse 54, Peter, and what do we read of him? He followed from a distance. It's tragic, isn't it? What's the point that Mark, the writer, is trying to get across? It's this. Everyone left him and there was nobody with him in his moment of crisis. And why is that so sad? Think of the patience of Jesus who has borne with his disciples in all their ignorance when they failed to believe and they've seen miracle after miracle and they still don't believe and he's been patient with them. Uh, We don't read it in Mark's gospel, but you go to John's gospel. What has Jesus just done? 
in his humility, he has washed their feet. The Son of God has washed the feet of disciples who keep forgetting, who keep failing. He's loved them so perfectly, so patiently, with such humility. And they've all deserted him. And then you read this little thing, the young man. And many scholars reckon that there's a good chance that this young man was Mark himself, a very young man at the time. And as he writes this gospel on the basis of Peter's testimony, perhaps he was there in the crowd somewhere. And he sort of says, oh, by the way, there was a young man there too. And without saying it, he's saying, that was me. I was there among the crowd. And what did I do? I scarpered at the last minute too. And notice how he scarpered. He scarpered naked. In that culture, to be naked was carrying great shame with it. But he'd rather run away naked for anyone to see him in that state than be identified with Jesus in this very hour. The disciples looked at Jesus. They should have seen, but they remained spiritually blind. And why for them? Was it not comfort? They love the easy life rather than running towards sacrifice. And what is it that Jesus has said back in Mark chapter 8? Those really challenging words where Peter confessed he was the Christ. He says, if anyone would come after me, what must they do? Deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me in the gospel will save it. And then he went on and said, what good is it for a man to gain the whole world but forfeit his soul? And what can a man give in exchange for his soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in glory with the holy angels. They're the words of Christian discipleship and they're challenging. Being a Christian is not easy. It's not meant to be easy. Jesus never said it would be easy. But in this moment, the disciples chose comfort over discipleship. Just as a little aside, this isn't the point of the passage, but there's a little application here. Have you ever been let down by someone? It's a bitter pill to swallow, isn't it, when somebody lets you down. It's just worth remembering as you read this story, Jesus knows exactly how you feel. My goodness, was he let down. So if you ever let down, come to your Savior who understands. Of course, that's not the point here, but that's an application we can draw from it. But what is the point? Jesus has said that the cost of discipleship is great, but they have decided not to follow. What a contrast from Mark chapter 1, where Jesus calls the disciples on the beach. And what do we read in Mark chapter 1? Immediately, they left everything and followed him. And just in the space of a few years, comfort had got the better of them. Again, it's worth asking a question. What is it in my life, what is it in your life, where we seek comfort over faithfulness? Because those who should have stayed close to him were not there, and Jesus was abandoned in that very hour. But the last thing to look at, look at the religious leaders. They took Jesus to the high priests, and the chief priests, the elders, the teachers of the law were there. Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard. There he sat with the guards and warmed himself by the fire. We're going to pause there and come back to this moment, this scene, next week. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence to arrest Jesus. I want you to notice in the following verses, look at two things. Look at the aggressive, blind intent of these religious leaders. All they care about is Jesus being put away. And look at Jesus' innocence. 
verse 55, looking for evidence against Jesus, they did not find any. Verse 56, many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. 57, then some stood up and gave false testimony against him. And then 59, their testimonies did not agree. The religious leaders are intent on doing one thing, and that is burying Jesus. But we notice time and time and time again, Mark the writer says, but he was innocent. And then verse 60, the high priest stands up. That's not just him getting up out of a chair. In the Jewish religion, that was written into their laws. That was a thing that the high priest would do when they've heard blasphemy. It was a signal almost. He stands up and he says, aren't you going to answer? But Jesus, verse 61, remains silent. Why? Because he doesn't need to protest his innocence. He knows he's innocent, but he's not there to protest his innocence and get out of what's happening. As we've looked at already, he's come to give himself and go to the cross. So in the garden, it's as if he's saying, don't fight me. I'm not here for a fight. I'm come to give myself. And he's saying to the high priest here, and don't try and trick me because you don't need to trick me. I'm giving myself. And of course, remaining silent, he's fulfilling that wonderful prophecy, Isaiah 53, verse 7, which spoke of God's Messiah, who when he was opposed, would not open his mouth. And then the high priest comes along and says, are you, stress on the word you, are you the Messiah, the blessed one? And here's the great irony here. The Jews would not use the name Yahweh, the covenant name of God. They would never dare speak it because it was such a holy, precious name. When they ever wrote the word Yahweh, they didn't write it in full. They took the vowels out. It was their way of showing reverence before God. So they wouldn't ever speak his name. And so instead of using the word Yahweh, they would use the name Blessed One. Isn't there great irony here? That the very name that they don't want to use, and therefore another name they're using in its place, they haven't understood at all. They haven't seen that the Messiah is standing in front of them. And they're claiming to use this name of respect because they don't dare speak the name of God. But they're doing everything but respect him. They're trying to bury him. And Jesus then responds, verse 62, I am, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tears his clothes again, not just because he's losing control. That was another signal. He's heard blasphemy again. Do we need any more witnesses? And those words of Jesus were amazing because he was quoting from Psalm 110 and from Daniel chapter 7. And if you read those in their context, they speak of God's Messiah coming as a judge. So when Jesus here says he's going to return as judge, he's looking at the, in the very eyes of the people who he's coming to judge, people who remain spiritually blind because they do not see who he is. And then notice again the sadness of verse 64. They all condemned him to death. The Sanhedrin was made up of a Jewish ruling council made up of 71 members who prided themselves on the law, waiting for their Messiah to come. And 71 of them were there looking at Jesus and they all condemned him as worthy of death. If there's ever been spiritual blindness, it was this scene. They looked at him, they should have seen, but they remained spiritually blind. And why was that the case for them? For these religious leaders, it was pride. They loved their intellectualism more than they loved their Messiah. They couldn't even see that it was him, even though he had spoken to them 
He had done everything in fulfilling prophecy. And that's why there's great irony when this trial, so full of agendas, so full of lies, descends to a kind of riot. And in verse 65, they say that they spat him, blindfolded him, struck him, and then said, prophesy. Has he not been doing this all of his life? And even the way he responded to the way that they were treating him was in itself fulfilling prophecy. What irony. What tragic irony. But friends, here's the thing I want to finish on. As you think about Judas's selfishness, the disciples' desire for comfort, the religious leaders' pride, and as you think about your own heart, as I reflect in my own heart, here's the key question we're going to end on. How did the Lord Jesus Christ respond? When he sees people who are selfish and love other things more than him, what does he do? He gives himself. Romans 5 verse 8, it was while we were still sinners that Christ died for us. What does the Lord Jesus do when he sees disciples who choose comfort over discipleship, take the easy path, and they don't pick up their cross and follow him? Jesus gives himself the hard way. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and gave his life as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And as Jesus looks at these religious leaders in all of their spiritual blindness, as he looks at us in our pride, what does he do? He gives himself. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And of course, it was the spiritual blindness of these people in the story, and it's our spiritual blindness, that actually was necessary to fulfill God's plans. Why? Because on the cross, Jesus gets what we deserve. He's cut off from his Father. Why? So that you and so that me get what we don't deserve, what Jesus deserved, which was eternity with the God who made us. And that is why I asked you the question at the beginning, which I'll finish with now. As you look at the cross, what do you see? It's one thing to look at the cross and say there was a man who was innocent, but he gave everything up in love. But here's the thing that's even more significant. When you look at the cross, don't just say there was a man who loved the world and gave up everything. The significant word is me. He gave up everything for me. Do you know this week I had a cup of tea with a 93-year-old man? And we were talking about some of this stuff. And as he was telling me about how he came to faith in the Lord Jesus, a tear rolled down his eye. 93 years old. He's seen more of life than all of us. But the one thing that still moved him at 93 was the fact that Jesus died for him. And then he went on to talk about how he led his wife to the Lord. And another tear rolled down from the other eye. He had grasped it. It's one thing looking at the cross and saying Jesus died. It's a completely different thing when you can look at the cross and say, he did that for me. And if there's anybody here who has not yet put your trust in Jesus Christ, or perhaps you've been following him for a long time, but you've never committed your life to him, you've never been baptized, that would be a wonderful thing for you to do. We're baptizing Barty Kratt on the 9th of April, one of our students who's coming back. It'd be wonderful to baptize other people. Because in baptism, what we do 
is we look at the cross and thank Jesus for what he did. But we say, you did it for me. And it makes all the difference in the world, friends. So be encouraged. Because this is a life-changing truth. And if we grasp it, it changes absolutely everything. Amen.